I would direct your attention this morning to our text, which is found in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 15 to 18. So we're in the middle of Hebrews chapter 10, considering with the Lord's help, verses 15 to 18. The section concludes in verse 18 with these words. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. In 1681, the intrepid Scottish covenanter Donald Cargill was led to the scaffold to be executed for his biblical and Presbyterian principles. And as he approached the ladder, he commented that he would ascend that ladder with less fear than ever he had entering the pulpit to preach the word of God to sinners. And he proclaimed from that scaffold that there was no more fear of death and hell than if he had never sinned. For, he says, all my sins are freely pardoned and washed away through the precious blood and intercession of Jesus Christ. The doctrine of Christ and the benefits of the new covenant had penetrated, had transformed the soul of Cargill. And he knew the fruit. He was sustained, he was sustained by it in his life, and he was sustained by it at the hour of his death as well. Well, these truths are the ones that we have been led to meditate upon in recent weeks in this section of, of Hebrews. And the truths that we've been considering matter. They matter most of all. They are what matters the very most. They matter for us in life. They matter for us in death, as with Cargill. They matter for us in time and in eternity. But as we come to this particular section, we're, we're actually approaching the hinge, the hinge of the book. So the book of Hebrews can be quite neatly divided into two parts. The first part begins in chapter 1, verse 1, and extends all the way through chapter 10, verse 18, the last verse of our text. And the second part begins in the next verse and takes us through to the end of the book. The first part of Hebrews is predominantly doctrine. So we have been hearing for quite a long time now uh, a great deal of biblical doctrine uh, throughout our exposition of Hebrews. But the second half of the book, or the second part of the book, beginning in chapter 10, verse 19, and clear to the end, is predominantly application. The application of that doctrine. This is a pattern that you'll see in many of the epistles throughout the, the New Testament. Now, if I were to ask you children, okay, so we've got, you know, nearly 10 chapters, half a chapter short of 10 chapters. What has been the doctrine? Like, how would you describe it in a sentence? What's the, the doctrine that we've been hearing? Well, one answer, and I think a good answer would be, we have been hearing the doctrine of the supremacy and superiority of Jesus Christ, right? We've come back to that. If we work through chapter after chapter, we keep coming back to that touchstone. And we're seeing how the text is unfolding for us. 
the supremacy and superiority of the Lord Jesus over the prophets and over, over the angels and over Moses and Joshua and Abraham even. And we've seen how he's, he's over Aaron and so on. We've looked at his superiority of his, of his sacrifice most recently, of his priesthood, of his covenant, of his tabernacle and so on and so forth. The supremacy and superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, if we look the other direction to the, the, the second part of the book, which is predominantly application, we could summarize that in terms of a call to persevering faith. The application of the doctrine is a call to persevering faith. So you'll see both of those components, faith and perseverance, interwoven in the large themes that remain in this book. That is the appropriate response to the doctrines that we have heard. And we'll see how that's fleshed out in a great deal of detail, both by warning and in terms of, of comfort. But the doctrine informs practice. This is always the case. As we see in 1 Timothy and Titus and elsewhere, Doctrine is always unto godliness. It's always unto godliness, right? The fruit of godliness is borne out. Well, we reached in the previous text, we reached kind of a conclusion in verse 14, the culmination, if you will, of the, the previous section. And what follows here and what remains, verses 15 to 18, really adds the outworking, some of the outworking of those truths, which reinforce the argument that we've had painstakingly laid before us. And it comes, it's reinforced, obviously, in verse 18, where the conclusion stated again, now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. So this conclusion is being reinforced. Well, three things this morning that we'll consider, each of which are related to the Lord himself. First of all, we have God's spirit in verse 15, whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us after that he had said before, and then what follows is a quotation from Jeremiah 31. And so we begin with God's spirit. And although this, this first point is briefer, it's nevertheless important for us. Whenever God tells us about himself, Whenever the Lord says anything to us about himself, we're never to pass over it without taking careful notice. I mean, this is good counsel for your own private Bible reading. You're reading in your morning devotions and whatever portion of scripture you're reading, you're bringing with you, I trust, a lot of questions, right? There's questions you're bringing to the text in order to draw out meditation and reflection on the text. One of the questions that should always be toward the top of that list is, what does this passage show me about God? What does it reveal to me about the Lord himself? How can I be brought to behold his glory in what is being shown to us, right? So we need to not pass over this by, without taking careful notice. The Holy, the Holy Spirit is referred to as a witness, whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us. And this word witness really has two parts, doesn't it? Because on one side, you think of witness and the way we use it in our colloquial language, a witness can be an observer. I was a witness 
to the car accident that took place. I observed it. I saw it. I, 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 I could see what, what took place. But then witness is also used in terms of bearing testimony. So a witness is called in the course of a trial and they're to bear testimony about something. We even refer to it in, in spiritual things. You know, I was witnessing to my neighbor. I was telling my neighbor, giving testimony to my neighbor about the gospel, about the Lord Jesus Christ and so on. These two things go together, of course, because the testimony is of what has been observed usually, but they, they can be distinguished. And there are times when distinguishing them is especially helpful. We'll come back to this later in the book because there's a point at which we come to this, I think is, is telling in terms of our understanding of what the passage is saying, understanding the relationship or the distinction between observing and, and testifying. But here it is obviously the emphasis is falling on testimony. Why? Because it says, whereof the Holy Ghost is a witness to us. So he's testifying, he's speaking, he's, he's telling us something. And ultimately, it's a confirmation of what he has told us before in the Old Testament prophecy of Jeremiah, which is quoted here in chapter 31. Now, in one sense, we can say the Holy Spirit is also an observer. You know, we heard in earlier portion of this chapter of those, those heavenly engagements in the covenant of redemption before time where, where the persons of the Trinity uh, covenanted together to bring about the work of, of redemption. And the Holy Spirit, of course, is present and concurring in all that's happening in the covenant of, of redemption. The Father determining to send the Son, the Son determining to be sent as the mediator. And the Spirit is witness and, and concurring in that, but also in the unfolding implementation of it. So within the covenant of grace in history and in the unfolding work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Spirit is always present and engaged in what is taking place there. But here it is his testimony that is given to us through the Scriptures themselves. He's witnessed to us by the word or through the word, Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34 in particular. And of course, that's what we read in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, for the prophecy, all of it, Jeremiah's and all the others, for the prophecy came not in the old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. What this is doing for us if we take one more step, is it is reinforcing the fact that the Holy Spirit is God, the deity of the Holy Spirit. You say, well, how is that? Because if you go back to Jeremiah, in the passage in Jeremiah 31, Jehovah is the speaker. Jehovah is the one who is actually speaking. And here in Hebrews 10, it is referred to, he is referred to as the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost is Jehovah, along with the Father and with the Son. And so we're seeing that the, the divine authority, why is that important? Because we receive scripture with divine authority, right? This authority alone in the word of God is the basis for our faith. We don't build our faith on merely the words of men. They have to be rooted, founded, grounded 
upon the authority of God as, as revealed in his word, in the Holy Scriptures. That's important because when the Lord is coming to speak words of comfort or promise to us, it's a little good if the minister says, well, this is something to encourage you. It's great good when God says that he will deliver the things that he's told you. It's one thing if a warning is given, be careful, beware, watch. You're in danger of, 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 of serious harm. If that comes, falls from the lips of a man. But it's another thing when it is God himself saying, beware, I'm warning you. Right? That comes with divine authority, both in terms of comfort and in terms of, of warning. We need a sense of that divine authority. And you'll notice it says, that the Holy Spirit is witness to us. Now, it's true that the Holy Spirit was witnessing to those that were alive at the time of Jeremiah's prophecy. He was speaking to, 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 to Judah, to Israel at the time. It was his word, God's word to them. But the passage here says that the Holy Spirit is witnessing to us. What was said in the days of Jeremiah to the Old Testament people of God is the same in what is being said to us. So this takes now the concept of divine authority, the sense of weight that that brings in our handling of the scripture, and it makes it very particular. God, with all of his divine authority, is speaking to you specifically. Right here, right now. When that word is opened and read and, and preached. God is speaking to you right now through his word. Well, that changes everything, right? The, the inclination for some who can be wide awake and fully engaged and active and energetic when they're playing their sports and who every time they put their sit down in the pew, doze, fall asleep, Right? It, it changes the context, doesn't it? God is, we're standing in the presence of Almighty God with all of his authority, and he's speaking to us in particular. So in, in bringing the argument and bringing some of the implications of this argument that Christ's sacrifice is once, it's final, it's forever, and therefore all of the other Old Testament sacrifices are abrogated forever, can never be recurring, can never be re-implemented or repeated, that argument is being reinforced now by citations from God's own mouth through the pages of the Holy Scripture. So these early Hebrew Christians might be saying, well, okay, we hear this and we hear that, we see the argument, but show me in the Scriptures. Well, we're being shown in the Scriptures. So we begin with God's Spirit. Secondly, God's law, verse 16. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds will I write them. So this covenant, these divine mercies, which have been promised in the new covenant, refer to the law in the heart. And as it goes on in verse 17 and 18, the forgiveness of sins. So these are the immediate fruit of Christ's sacrifice. The law being internalized and sins being forgiven are the immediate fruit of Christ's sacrifice. So God's dealing with his people as he always has. 
He's dealing with his people by covenant. And through the covenant, it's always through the covenant that all of the good comes to his people. It comes by way of, of covenant. And so we're being told, again, something about this. Now, we've already addressed this passage, haven't we? Because this portion of Jeremiah 31 was quoted in Hebrews chapter 8. So in Hebrews chapter 8, we've already given some detailed consideration to it. I'm not going to repeat all of that. You'll remember much of it, perhaps. I will, I will remind you of this, that in reference to the, new the prophecy of the new covenant, we can think of the new covenant in terms of it being inaugurated by the Lord Jesus Christ, continuing throughout the ages, and ultimately consummated on the last day in heaven. Inaugurated, continuing, and consummated. And one of the things that we were emphasizing when, when we were in chapter 8 is that God is speaking to his people in terms of the all-encompassing nature of the new covenant with an emphasis on its consummation. You know, I've had, they've been under the covenant of grace in a previous administration, and we're told in Jeremiah 31, they broke it. And he's saying, I am going to bring about in the new covenant, ultimately in the consummation, no ability to break it, which is fulfilled in heaven, where the people of God are not able to sin, no longer able to sin. And so that's where the emphasis falls in terms of Jeremiah uh, 30, 31, what's been decisively secured in the new covenant, in its full fruition, where people are no longer able to break that covenant. Well, there are implications, of course, for right now as well, because we know in part what we will know fully uh, then. You think of this, this uh, description given of the law put in the heart, written in, in the mind. This was true, of course, in the garden. Adam. Adam had the law of God written on his heart, had his, had his law em emblazoned in his, his own mind. And as a consequence, in his unfallen state, his instincts and his inclinations were toward God's command. Right? That's how he was created. He was created upright. And in, in his unfallen and, and sinless state, right, he, the law of God inflamed his heart and his mind. And there was, of course, a symmetry between what was found within him and the revelation of God's will out, outside of him. But after the fall, things change, don't they? The vestiges are still there in the constitution of man. So that, so that there's still vestiges after the fall of the law being in the heart of, of men. We know that because uh, Romans 2 tells us that in verses 14 and 15. For when the Gentiles which have not the law do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness in their thoughts, the meanwhile ac accusing or else excusing uh, one another. And so there are the vestiges of this testimony within the, built within the conscience of, of mankind generally. The problem is, so man has a conscience, a vice region of God in his soul that, that, that makes him aware of the fact that he is a sinner and that he is sinning, that murder's wrong and rape's wrong and so on, you know, stealing is wrong and so on and so forth. 
The problem is that he is not subject to it. The problem is that the natural man rebels against the law of God. Romans 8 verse 7, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. And so there's this raging war and resistance. So law haters become lawbreakers. And you see it in the natural man who is left in his sins. But then with regards to the Christian, there's a transformation by the Holy Spirit, a renovation that takes place. And the Lord is pleased in his mercy, right? To give the Christian a nature to serve the Lord, to obey the Lord, to please the Lord, to honor the Lord, to glorify the Lord. And as a consequence, you see in Romans 7 verse 22, the believing soul delights in the law of God after the inward man. So there's a delight in the law of God as a consequence of God's grace. Chap Romans 7 verse 25 says that the natural man serves the law of God, walks in its ways and in obedience to the Lord. We, we sing about this in, in the Psalms. Oh, how I love thy law. And it is filling our thoughts so that it's our meditation day and night. And there's this plea for the Lord to be working his law into our souls, into the depths of our souls. We sing about that in Psalm 51 and Psalm 19 and so on and so forth. But full conformity to the law of God in our hearts and minds takes place at the consummation of the new covenant in heaven itself. So you think of this wonderful change. Notice the, notice the subject in verse 16, I will make. And then it goes on, I will put my laws into their hearts. In their minds, will I write them? Right? This wondrous change, this remarkable, phenomenal change is, is attributed to God alone. It's attributed to God. I will. Right? It's his invincible, his miraculous work. The fact is, no one else can do it. No man can do it for themselves or for someone else. No one else can do it. No one else, for example, can take out the heart, heart of stone and, and replace it with a heart of flesh. No one else can, can bring these things to pass but the Lord. He's the one who comes and subdues the enmity. And he's the one who implants conformity within the soul of his people. This is a work of God himself. And so the glory goes to God himself. You'll also notice that it is not the promises which are put into the heart and written on the mind, but it is the law. Now, I wish we had time and we don't this morning to kind of trace this out further. But it's not the promises, it's the law. It is what's in view here is subjection to God's will, conformity to God's likeness. This is a promise, I will do it. But what the content of what's being described is the law itself. When we say law, it's a reference, as we saw in chapter 8, to the moral law, the moral law of God. Not all the ceremonies and everything else that have been addressed previously, but the moral law, which is summarized in the Ten Commandments. 
that moral law is planted within the hearts, within the souls and minds of, of God's people. And so it's revealed to us, the moral law is revealed to us objectively, outwardly, in writing, in the pages of Holy Scripture, in by way of summary in the Ten Commandments and by way of exposition through Genesis to Revelation. But also the moral law is revealed subjectively, inwardly, in the soul, not just in writing, within the hearts of his people, so that he plants it within them and gives them a love for it. Now, one of the things, one of the implications for this, we noted in chapter 8 that it is the same law under the new covenant. So it's the law, the moral law of God, that hasn't been um, set aside or replaced or whatever. No, it's that law that is the content placed into the hearts and minds of new covenant believers. But you'll see how that reinforces the fact that you can't get rid of the moral law of God. You can't get rid of the moral law of God because it's a transcript of his own holiness. It would be an attack on God's very character. You can't get rid of the, law of, uh, the moral law of God because it is inscribed in the Ten Commandments as a permanent standard, standard of right and wrong for all time and all ages and all people. But you can't get rid of it as well because you can't extract it from the heart and mind of God's people. How are you going to eradicate this law when it has been embedded and emblazed within the very souls of, of God's people? There is no redaction of the moral law of God from his revealed will. Well, this brings to the fore, doesn't it, a mark of grace for us and for our self-examination. Because it's not speaking here merely of a notional knowledge of the law of God. Yes, I can quote the Ten Commandments. Yes, I can tell you which commandment is which number, and so on and so forth. It's speaking about an internal and heart acquaintance with that law. Right? What's reflected in language like Paul's, I delight in it, or David's, I love it. It's planted within the heart and within the mind. So that there should be within the believer, within them, an answer to what they find without them, outside of them. Right? There should be a resonance between what's revealed in the, the, the law, in the Bible, and within their own hearts. In other words, for the believer, there should be a desire, there should be a longing there should be a sense that this is our chief business as redeemed sinners to walk in the ways of the Lord, to run in the will of the Lord, to seek out of love and gratitude, to, to, to glorify him, to obey him, uh, to be conformed to his likeness, to grow in righteousness, to die unto sin, and so on. This should be a desire. It's not a mark of grace to say that one has obtained all of that, that would be going too far, wouldn't it? But rather that a believer sincerely desires it, longs for it. What is it that, what is it that grieves us? What grieves us is our violations of his law. What's reflected in our prayers? Our desire to be nearer to him and, and made more like unto him and to be 
given strength to, to walk in obedience to him. Our prayers reflect that. Why? This longing is tied to the fact that love for God produces love for his law. You can't, you can't have love for God without love for his law, which reveals who God is and what he is pleased with and what he wills and, and desires. And so secondly, we have God's law hastening on. Thirdly, we have God's pardon. It says in verse 17, And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. God says he will remember the sins of his people no more. Let's be careful. This is not a denial of his omniscience. God is all-knowing. To say, well, that God is an omniscient when it comes to the sins of his people would be to un-God God. Right? It would be God is unchangeable, and, and, and you, you, you can't um, detract from his, his glory. So it's not a denial of his omniscience. But it's saying, when he says, I will remember their sins no more, he's saying, I will not recall them as judge. I will not recall them as judge. I will not set them, as it were, before my face or hold these sins against my people. Why? Because they've been discharged. They've been satisfied in the substitute of my son, the Lord Jesus Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The sins of God's people have been reckoned to him, accounted credited to his, his account, imputed to him, and his law righteousness has been attributed and accounted to his believer, uh, his believing people. And so the Lord says, I won't remember their sins anymore in that sense. I will not hold them against them. Sin is buried in oblivion, if you will, before God. So you take all those, you start pulling the various threads that are given throughout the Old Testament, the language that's given there. The Lord says in Isaiah, I will cast your sins behind my back. They're not in front of my face. I'm not holding them up as a provocation. They've been cast behind my back. Or in Micah, he says, I've thrown them into the depths of the sea. Right? They're, they're, being, they're being buried in oblivion. He says, I will blot them out as a thick cloud. He says, as we sing in Psalm 103, I will separate their sins from them as far as the east is from the west and remember them no more. All of this describes the same thing, the irrevocable act of God in granting the forgiveness of his people. And in that forgiveness comes forgetfulness, as it were, speaking metaphorically. But forgiveness brings about forgetfulness. We pray this, don't we? Places like Psalm 25, where we're asking the Lord not to remember the sins of our youth, to forget them, as it were, to forgive them, to bury them. And this is important, recognizing the relationship of forgiveness and forgetfulness, or what is forgotten, because it has a horizontal application too, doesn't it? In Ephesians 4, verse 32, And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. 
So the question is, well, how has God, for Christ's sake, forgiven us? Throwing it behind his back, casting in depths of sea, separating this from as far as the east is from the west, remembering them no more. He says, well, even as we're to forgive one another, that when we, when we agree to forgive a brother, we are making a commitment to bury the issue. We're making a commitment to forget what has happened. Not to go speaking to other people about, you hear what they did or said or didn't do and so on and so forth. Not throwing it back up in their face a week or two or month or year later. Not even rehearsing it in our own heads. But by the grace of God, burying it in oblivion. It's the nature of part of what forgiveness includes. But here it's speaking about what he does for his people, what God himself does. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. You know, I think as a, as a minister, how, how, how can, how can this, this truth, this glorious truth, which is so incredibly familiar to you, which you've heard so many countless times, and which, which can roll off many of your tongues almost thoughtlessly. How do we get past that familiarity in order to feel the full force of how glorious this truth is? Extremely difficult, isn't it? It's extremely difficult to do so. But I think part of it is this. Forgiveness, the idea of God's forgiveness, sits so lightly on our hearts and minds because sin sits so lightly on our hearts and minds. When sin is seen and felt and known to be something of enormous weight and burden and anguish, then the relief of it is reflected in a sense of great liberty and blessing. You know, to make this even more concrete, I'm sorry to say it, but if someone were to rape, torture, and kill your mother, your spouse, your daughter, your sister, if that were to happen, and then the person were to be converted and come to their senses and, and all of that, and were to come with, with sincere repentance and to ask forgiveness, how easy would it be for you to forgive them. You say, well, now that's very personal. Good. I think it needs to be personal in order to break through the layers of, of some of our coldness. The fact is that your sins are infinitely worse than that. They're infinitely worse because of who you sin against an infinitely holy, just and good God. And so that the smallest infractions of, your, of his law against him are worse than what anyone could do against you. We have to see something of how our sins are infinitely worse. To see and to actually be fully persuaded of how much our sins deserve damnation. That if the Lord were to damn us into the depths of hell for an endless eternity it would be absolutely equitable 
completely fair, just before God. If we can catch a sight of that, a taste of that, if we can, if we can feel something of the realities of that, then the Lord comes to us and he says, here's what I'll do. Your sins and iniquities will I remember no more. The Lord comes and says, no, you're pardoned. You're forgiven. You think of how Bunyan describes it with Pilgrim, right? This overwhelming burden on his back. He can't get rid of it. He's bewailing it. He's toting it around everywhere with him. And at time, he rolls that off at the foot of the cross, right? The believer has a sense of this, free at last, where the Lord is pleased to give us in these promises light and liberty and love that we are fully forgiven. I mean, this is what gives the believer sunshine every day to be able to wake up and think there are, it's literally new mercies for me today. That the Lord is pleased in his mercy. That there is no impending hell that is hanging over my head. That I am not living under the wrath of God. Every breath of his that I take, every heartbeat that I have, every token of goodness and food that I put in my mouth or whatever ever other blessing, every wink of sleep that I get, having hell hang over my head. No. The Lord says, you've been set free. There is, no, no, there is therefore no, no condemnation. These iniquities, they have been forgiven. I will remember them no more. Well, then we come to places like Psalm 32. Blessed is the man whose sins are not imputed to him. And that blessedness is a whole lot more than happiness, but it includes happiness. How incredibly happy is the man? whose sins haven't been credited to his account, who's been pardoned and forgiven and liberated and lives under the light of God's gracious countenance. This is happiness. This gives a bounce in the step. This puts light in the countenance. This refreshes and strengthens the hearts of the Lord's people. And it's out of a sense of depth of love and gratitude for all that he's done in his redeeming grace, all that he's done in this sacrifice of Jesus Christ to deliver us, that leaves us saying, what can I do to glorify him? What can I do to please him? How can I honor him? How can I extol him? How can I serve him? How can I be more like him? Right? It's that fuel which says, oh, how I love thy law. Give me grace to run in it walk in the way of thy, thy commandments, devotion to the Lord. The lethargy is a lack of love. And the lack of love comes from a lack of a sight of all that the Lord has delivered us from, those who are Christians. And a lack of the sight of seeing our deliverance comes from how lightly sin sits on our consciences and in our minds. Verse 18 now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Here you have the point reinforced. Remission is forgiveness. Where there is pardon or forgiveness for these sins, there is no more offering. Right? The argument that we've seen unfold over this whole chapter is irresistible. The perfection of Christ's sacrifice, the completion of Christ's sacrifice, 
secured everything that was necessary. That what Christ did is finished and it is fully sufficient. And therefore, there can never be any other sacrifices. Those of the Old Testament continually repeated, the false ones of Rome with their blasphemy or any other notion, there can be no other sacrifice ever. His sacrifice is indeed perfect and complete. And so we see God's pardon. The Lord's pleased to grant to us the full forgiveness of sins through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. This argument is confirmed by God's own spirit. It's confirmed by what he's pledged in his law being emblazoned in our hearts. And it's confirmed by the pardon that he has obtained for us. Let's stand together for prayer. O Lord, our God in heaven, give us, we pray, the ability to see something of the glory of the salvation that is secured for thy people. O Lord, help us not to treat sin lightly and thereby treat the sacrifice of Christ lightly and thereby treat lightly the wonder of salvation from sin. Give us, O Lord, a sight of the light and liberty and love that all of this has secured for thy people Give us, we pray, to rejoice that there is no, therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.